0: Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. My name is Podcast Mike, and this week's guest on the show is Vic Zerbst. If you were unfamiliar with the name Vic Zerbst, you may be more familiar with Freudian Nip, uh, a comedy, a satirical comedy performing duo, which consists of Vic Zerbst and her writing and comedy partner Jenna Owen. Freudian Nip have been performing on the feed on SBS for I think about three years now and have really blown up online with over 60 million views across uh, their sketches. Both Jenner and Vic were co-directors of the Chase's War on 2020 web series, which got acclaim from the sketch The Contact Tracys, which is possibly Freudian Nip's best-known work at this stage. In this chat, Vic talks pretty deeply about a bunch of her philosophies on life, and it gets pretty complex here. I believe Vic did study philosophy at university, so she is really well-versed for this podcast, and I know uh, both Will and I really enjoyed having her on as a guest. If you would like to check out some of Freudian Nip stuff, just search in Freudian Nip on Google, and I'm sure a bunch of their sketches will pop up. There is an upcoming episode of Philosophy scheduled with Jenna Owen. There is also an episode that is coming out very soon with Mark Humphreys, who is mentioned in this podcast as well. And if you want to listen to another podcast straight away after you listen to this, Vic talks a lot about working with Charles Firth from The Chaser in this episode. You can listen to Willosophy with Charles Firth straight after this. Just scroll up in your podcast feed and uh, listen to Charles's episode, which is a great one as well. If you want to support Willosophy, head to patreon.com slash Willosophy for as little as a dollar a month. You get episodes of Willosophy a day early. You get a Sunday episode of Willosophy, Sunday morning listening with no ads That is exclusive to our Patreon members. Sometimes we throw a bit of a bonus episode up there as well. So, definitely go and support the show. As well as that, you can head to Tofop.com, check out all of our great artwork, and also check out our other podcasts, Tofop, Fofop, and Two Guys, One Cup. Will Anderson and Charlie Clawson will be doing the Tofop podcast live at the Great Australian Podcast Festival in November. Tickets are selling very, very fast. I am not just saying that. There is a link to get tickets in the description below. It is currently... Going ahead despite all the current lockdown things. So uh, I implore you to get your tickets fast because they are selling out pretty fast. Uh, so go and do that. And without further ado, I will pass it on to this episode of Philosophy with Will Anderson and Vic Zerps from Freudian Nip. Enjoy. <laughs>
1: Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and this is how the show starts. I ask my guest who they are. So, pretty simple, who are you?
2: I am Vic Zerbst from Freudian Nip.
1: Hello, Vic Zerbst from Freudian Nip. It's nice to have you here. For those who don't know, because, you know, look, I know who Freudian Nip are because I am still very young and cool and hip, (laughs) Vic, as you've probably heard the word (laughs) going around the industry, but not all of my audience might be familiar with you guys and the work that you've been doing. So give uh, people an idea of what Freudian Nip is.
2: Um, Well, Freudian Nip is a kind of comedy collective. I started with my comedy partner, Jenna Owen, I think around six years ago now. Um, We've been working at The Feed on SBS for three years, um, which has just been like totally wild and a bit of a dream for us doing political satire. Um, The end of last year, we directed The War on 2020, which was the Chaser production, and we've also been touring with the Chaser for the last I think also three years we've been working with, um, Charles Firth and yeah, it's really, it's really been crazy. Cause I met Charles through, I was a, an editor of like the student newspaper at university of Sydney. And I met Charles, mm-hmm. um, through like satire and through like his work. Cause he used to edit, um, Oniswa. And then Jen and I started writing articles for the Chaser, even before we were doing stuff for the feed. So we definitely like had a lot of, um, mentorship from charles um but that's kind of what we do we're kind of best known for like we did a sketch like the schoolgirls leadership spill sketch in 2018 that was like the first kind of big thing that blew up and then um we were both in the contact tracy's sketch so you are um you're listening to the contact tracy with the ponytail the very thin ponytail. That's me.
1: <laughs> I mean, I, I think that really clears it up for yeah. people. Thank you. I appreciate that. So t- take me back to the uni days, writing for the university newspaper. Was mm. that with an eye on that it was something that you would like to pursue? Because obviously there mm. is a tradition, particularly at Sydney University, of a whole bunch of, you know, Australian entertainers in political satire, but not just in political satire, mm. in comedy and entertainment in general, have gone through that school and through those papers. You can actually see A career path out of it in a way that perhaps if you're at some other university writing for the university newspaper, you might not see. So, when you start writing those articles, is it with a view that this is something you'd like to be doing professionally?
2: Can I tell you, not at all? I think I had the mindset at uni of like just dedicating myself wholly to these really like short term goals. Like when I was there, I just wanted to like make stuff and do stuff and be around like the cool people and the creative people. And for me, that was like a means to kind of collaborate i think that one thing that will come up i'm sure is just like i i love working in teams i love working in groups and um i think part of the appeal of oniswa was not even i don't think i was ever interested in journalism i don't think i was ever interested in yeah even doing satire wasn't it never seemed like something i could do as a job ever it was just kind of that fun thing you do um to make life a a little bit easier to handle um and when I found the, the team at, at Oni and, and being able to work with 10 people on an editorship like basis, that for me was so exciting. And then it was actually off the back of our final edition, we did a full-blown parody of The Australian. And we had some incredible like designers who made it look like a broadsheet newspaper. And we got like a lot of that was the first time like something that I was a part of was picked up by like the newspapers, and there were like these. Kids from Sydney Uni have made a fake Australian. I think the, the cover said Rupert Murdoch dead at 86 on the front cover, and everyone kind of freaked out. and And even we got like a tweet from the CEO of the Australian being like, "Good job, kids, high distinction" or something, something patronising like that. Um,
1: well, that's because in my lifetime, the Australian has become a full blown parody of the Australian. That so is, they very did it first. True. They're like, "Oh, we actually did this years ago." <laughs>
2: That is actually so true. But no, to answer your question, it never felt like a career path. Like I was, funnily enough, at uni studying philosophy and I always thought maybe I'd be a, a philosopher king or I was really interested in in like public philosophy or like what that looks like or even, I don't know, teaching. But I never knew what I wanted to do until I kind of fell into comedy by accident that it became like a job I was asked to join a show that had the shortest run on ABC ever um which is great like one of those little shows that gets cancelled after six eps and you go that's actually a bit of a relief and I never want to talk about it again (laughs) (laughs) but then after that like Jen and I because Jen and I have been working together yeah since those uni days and we started out And it's a very classic story of like, you know, there were lots of really amazing dudes who were like the comedy bros. And we always wanted to like, you know, you know, jam with them and and do comedy. And we kind of felt a little bit excluded. So out of like necessity, we like made our own thing, which again, I think a lot of this is colored by right place, right time. Like 2015 was really the beginning when we started working together of like women to the front, get the girls in comedy. Like it even felt transgressive to be doing comedy at that time now it really it, it doesn't feel like that as much maybe we're just kind of used to it or we've just kind of stuck our feet so quickly into the ground that we're not we're not like we're going to refuse to like you know stop doing it you know um but yeah it's just um it it definitely feels like we fell into it at the right place right time and then we just kept going
1: yeah, I mean, it's. I'm glad that it is more the right place, the right time now, mm. because it just shows how ridiculous was that it wasn't the right place, the right time for so many years for so many people. Because all those barriers that were put up around, mm. you know, people's sex, sexuality, accents, looks, whatever, have as, as as soon as they have been torn down, they've been exposed as how ridiculous they were in the first yeah. place. And I think that is actually one of the things that frustrates me the most is how quickly you know the integration has happened, showing that. There wasn't any legitimate things that were in the way of it in the first place.
2: Yeah, oh, absolutely. It just shows how much of like a, a, like a social construct or a perception that was. Just, you know, I remember in like 2009 reading that Christopher Hitchens essay, like, Women Aren't Funny or like, Why Women Aren't Funny. And and actually, like, he was like, such a well-regarded, like, like person. Yeah, people loved him. Yeah. They're like,
1: he's a public intellectual yeah. saying women aren't funny. Let's dig him up and <laughs> show him some contact tracing
2: stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. Like, now all All of the people that I look up to so much, like, you know, so many of them, if not most of them, I hate to say, you know, are women. And it's crazy to think that even like, what, 10, 15 years ago, that wasn't even like thought of. It feels crazy. It does.
1: It was not thought of and it wasn't even expected. Yeah. Because I've lived through that era. Like, I've lived through the era of all-male comedy stand-up nights where it just wasn't part of the conversation that it needed to be something else. Like, you know, sat on TV panels where there were four men and one woman and that felt like, look, there's a woman on, we're representing. Like, it all seems so completely ridiculous now, Mm. but it's recent history, as you said. So, yes, a bit of the right time, right place, but you've got to be also then the right talents to take, you know, that opportunity and run with it. So, okay, so tell me... I want to get back to philosophy in a minute because obviously for this podcast, I'm mostly always asking people about their life philosophy, which is yeah. really more like a motto or an attitude yeah, or something yeah. like that. Whereas <laughs> I've actually got somebody on with some philosophy education here today. It would be a pity to waste it. But let's just quickly talk about mm. that moment of finding yourself, you know, on this short lived show Mm. but then you know thinking no we can turn this into something else this Mm. is an opportunity we can work together we can create our own work and how that Mm. led to where you are at the moment
2: well it's so funny I think that um Jen and I and we've worked with a couple other um girls women I don't I I say girls and that's fine for me um On some other stuff, we'd, like, made some videos for Junkie that kind of went a bit viral, and I think the show kind of happened at the same time as all of that. I think after the show, we decided that we didn't want to do it anymore, which is so funny. And my comedy partner, Jenna Owen, she – it was mostly like wanting to be an actor. She took time off, did like a David Williamson play at the Ensemble Theatre. I was thinking of going back into like doing musical theatre and like doing some earnest like writing, like going back to like a music because I and this sounds yeah sounds like a different life. But I, when I was growing up, I was trained to be an opera singer, and so I was like, I want to get back into music and um do more songwriting and take myself a bit more seriously because we saw like the comedy world can be really um overwhelming. And we really weren't looking to do any more comedy after that. It only happened because um, Evan Williams, who's Mark Comfrey's writing partner, literally damned me on Twitter being like, hey, like this is like halfway through 2018 and we kind of stopped at the end of 2017. So for six months we weren't doing comedy. He's like, oh, like um, Mark and I are thinking of, um, you know, moving on. Would you and Jen be interested in maybe coming, having a trial at SBS? And we were kind of like, at the beginning, we kind of said, no, we were like, I don't think we want to do this anymore. Like it just felt like a really difficult thing to get back into. And a lot of our love for it had been kind of, um, kind of squashed, but we met with, um, um, the EP at the feed and we had, we just said, well, let's just do a trial. We're not doing anything else. Like we're not making any money. So we may as well just try. And I think we just found ourselves like with this team of like really amazing people who and and this is a thing like when you're doing comedy cuz the feed is actually like a news and current affairs show which is, I think why we really love it cuz most people are like doing like really serious documentary journalism and there's a lot of like heart and empathy and and the comedy is that that thing at the end that kind of feels a little bit sometimes a little bit out of place but is slowly being integrated into the show's ethos and philosophy and I think being in that environment which wasn't purely a comedy environment felt really we could be like the naughty kids in a very serious place. And that felt a lot better than what we were in, which were like the serious kids in a very silly place. Because, you know, we you know take ourselves quite seriously and we like want to work really hard. And I think we found that. I don't know, like our, our work ethic or our, our values felt really in line with the show um, of The Feed, which is very much about, you know, telling different and interesting stories. And I think it's about finding that home and, God, it it, it really just clicked.
1: Yeah, The Feed is one of these – I mean, I've become a bit of a Feed evangelist, I must say. Like <laughs> I was talking to Alex Lee about this, but, like, you know, I've talked to Jen Fran about it a bunch of times. Mm. And the the environment there, both for journalism and mm. comedy, mm. is – Incredible, And it's what public broadcasting should be about. It's, again, I say this every time I'm like a broken record, but I think (laughs) it needs to be said. It's exactly what the ABC should be doing. It is a disgrace that Mm. Tonightly, or at least the budget for Tonightly, still doesn't exist at the ABC because all of the people who worked on that show Mm. are going to go on and make their – have already a lot of them gone on and made brilliant things. They will continue Mm. to do so, and it's the same with The Feet. Like, you know, generations of Australian performers and writers and producers and whatever have come through that show and will look back on that show as being, like the pivotal training ground of what they do for the rest of their life. So give me a little bit of the vibe of what it's like to work there and what you think the philosophy of the place is and your internal philosophy within that. Mm,
2: That is such a good question. I I think that when you do, I'll just speak for me about doing political Mm. satire. For me, when I was at uni, I was really interested in, in contemporary philosophy and came across this branch of philosophy called I'm going to get into the words, Will. I'm sorry, I'm doing it. Like, I was like, oh, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to give you the terms and then I'll unpack them. But I yeah, was really interested absolutely. in. Absolutely. In, um... If you could philosophy
1: explain <laughs> to me, that I would, would be great.
2: love to. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was so interested in this branch of philosophy called social epistemology, which kind of had this resurgence with a lot of feminist philosophy. Um, but, you know, a- epistemology is like the study of knowledge and how we know things and social epistemology kind of treats um the study of knowledge is well looking at the relevance of the communities to knowledge and how kind of knowledge is the social construct and and it puts like knowledge and understanding through the same lens that you might look at sociology or how people interact together what that means is you can look at um the levels of power dynamics that play out with people that would then project onto how we know things and who gets to be the one that says things, who is left out of those conversations. And there's really interesting like subsections or there's an amazing philosopher, Miranda Fricker, who's a contemporary philosopher who talks about testimonial injustice, like the people that are silenced or left out or are not believed for certain reasons. And I think, you know, obviously, and I'm going to say it as a woman, um, but you know, the he sh- the he said, she said stories or the fact that women have been silenced for so long, even You know, there's this other amazing female philosopher, Kate Mann, who talks a lot about misogyny and the idea of misogyny is the policing wing of sexism. So there's these assumptions we have about people, which is, you know, your isms, your racism, sexism, ableism, and those are all socially constructed levels of power and dominance. And it's really interesting seeing how you can use representational media or you can use discussions and language to kind of shift how people understand or, or, or see the world, which all sounds, sorry, it sounds very convoluted and I, I don't even know if that made sense to you. It makes sense in my little brain.
1: <laughs> uh, no, it absolutely makes sense. I understand this. Like, I mean, yeah. some shorthands yeah. in between, yeah. which is this idea of, you know, what what I would say is in terms of to give a mm-hmm. more maybe – easy to understand example Mm. from my point of view and I'll reflect it back to you and you can tell me where and when I'm not right and wrong. From my experience making things, Mm. you know, I've lived in a world where there was rooms where predominantly the people who worked on the show looked like me and had similar life experiences Mm. to me, right? And Mm. there were certain assumptions made about people the way that we would communicate to people about how audiences would come to things that we all agreed on, and we all thought were right, because there was no one else there to have a different experience. Then you broadcast that to actually—if you you, you know—you can't be it if you can't see it. You know, don't have a conversation yeah. about something without including somebody who's actually part of that conversation, and not include mm-hmm. them in a tokenistic way. It suddenly changes it again. I understand mm-hmm. that. The communication isn't just about what you say. You can have a very balanced Mm. panel, but if your writing room is all, like, white guys still writing for the show. Like... You're not. Yeah. The communication is still going to be through one prism, right? That's, so yeah. the 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 very nature of the understanding of the group and how the group communicate with mm. to each other and mm. within that group also reflects itself in the way that we communicate externally. Well, is totally, that what you were saying?
2: Exactly. And I think why this has kind of exploded my mind a little bit is my job mostly is to make digital videos for the internet, where your audience is so diverse with multiplicities of backgrounds and experiences. And you're trying to put out something that really considers an audience of, you know, I think when you make broadcasts, you're very aware of your audience, like for the feed, it's, it's usually, um, you know, actually a lot of regional and rural audiences, which I I think is, is so sick and awesome. And I love seeing that to know that you're being able to reach people and connect with people who don't live in the same kind of place that you do, but a lot of like older audiences or, you know, audiences that are not like, you know, on on the TikTok, on the gram. But I think for our digital staff, we're trying to relate to as many people as possible. And so having an understanding of all the different intersections of, of, Um, socialization that impact how people know things for some reason is always what I go back to when I am talking about sketches or like, what's the point of this or whose voice is not being heard when we have this discussion or how do we open up that conversation or how do we represent that in a way, you know, using what we have, which is usually just me Jenna, and a shooter editor um, for a lot of our digital stuff. Um, So it's a very, I always say like, I use my philosophy degree every single day figuring out how to, um, be part of the system of, of social dominance um, and and whose voice gets to be heard and, and how that impacts power because it's political. And and this is the thing. It's the personal, it's political, it's this new, like interesting brand of philosophy which forms the foundation, and this is where it gets really tricky, of identity politics. And I think mm. what's been so interesting is I like – you know, spent a lot of years reading a lot of the in-depth kind of philosophy around this stuff. And I think when you see it on the internet, it's this very flattened surface level understanding of like, oh, you can't say this, or these are the rules. And you forget that it actually comes back into this like really rich discussion of, of, of injustice that has happened for, you know, you know, centuries and trying to unpack it and unpick it. And I think that, you know, you get a little bit um i I get so tired with the culture wars because so much of the conversation is so flat and so you know like one-dimensional and part of me is like if we were actually having like really in-depth conversations what that would even what that would even look like
1: so that's that's an interesting point because Mm. from all i've heard is political correctness has gone mad and you can't be funny anymore so I mean, what you're saying makes no sense to me at all. I can't I use <laughs> <laughs> religious and homophobic slurs anymore to get a laugh. Come on, guys. Um, no. I, I, so I think it is interesting about the nuance mm. of your mm. discussion because you mm. m- mentioned the internet, and uh, particularly at the moment, and I think that uh, like some of this is a culmination of where we are in the life cycle of yeah, technology and the companies behind technology and how they've hooked us into the infrastructure and our brains adjusting. So... There's that part of it, but there's also the world circumstances where unfortunately everybody kind of gets onto social media starting at an eight or nine, regardless of what side of any debate you are on, everyone's coming in hot. Like don't no need to ease yourself in, everyone's hot at the moment. So if you're making content that is largely seen and distributed through social media, how do you as a creator deal with the feedback you're going to get because particularly when you're working in the space that you're going to work in you're not only going to have like an incredible amount of feedback from people who aren't enjoying what you're doing but i imagine you probably still get as much passionate feedback from people who are enjoying it or enjoy most of it but have a problem with one way that you've represented something or said something like i feel like so how do you deal with the the fact that the very place where the majority of your entertainment is viewed is the place where everybody's emotions are most heightened?
2: Oh, again, such a good question. I think that, I mean, there's two kind of worlds in which I kind of respond to this. The first is obviously like, you know, as as a woman and for me and Jen having to come and replace someone like Mark Humphries, who's so beloved. And I think for the first, couple months, it was pretty brutal. Like a lot of the comments were like, these girls aren't funny. Who are these? Do these women think they're funny? Where's Mark? Bring back Mark. And I think for, that was kind of tricky at the beginning. Like we were young when we started. Yeah. We were like, you know, in our early mm. 20s just trying to have a go. And, and I think obviously now.
1: Did anyone tell you that, by the way? I'm very mm. interested in whether anybody warned you that that was going to be part of it because mm-hmm. for years, like so at Triple J, it's become a joke <laughs> now, but there was a period of time where you literally didn't want to answer the phone yourself because you would hear bring back Adam and yeah. Will. And we had it with who was before us, you know. It just is the way that an audience that loyal takes a while to adjust to whatever the new thing is. And I always thought the worst thing was no one really sat you down and said, hey, for the first six months, you're just going to hear a lot about how good Mark Humphreys was. It's fine. This is just part of the process. Was there any warning that that was going to happen?
2: You know, I definitely don't think so. I, I, I think it would definitely not be like – um, like the onus wouldn't be on Mark to tell us that at all because you can't just go to the next person like, hey, by the way, people are really going to miss yeah. us or like, <laughs> hey, they're going to really think that I'm the best and you guys are shit. I, but the, so I would never, I wouldn't ever say that to anyone who would come and, and take the, the, you know, the job after us. I but know, but I think,
1: some, like a boss or yeah. someone should say it. I'm not suggesting I, that, yeah. I'm not suggesting that no. Mark should have <laughs> sat you down. <laughs> he you hey. may have misinterpreted <laughs> what I was thinking. I wasn't thinking, no, Mark, no. Evan <laughs> invites you to a meeting in Mark's office and Mark's like, look, I've got some bad news. (laughs) we really know this and people loved us and you're going to get a lot of (laughs) conspiracy
2: no i that's actually no it's a really good point i don't think anyone ever did but i also think because we have been making stuff on the internet Mm. a little bit before the feed i think we're just used to the fact that you're going to get a lot of comments about you know your appearance or like you know the fact that you're a woman and there is a lot of of, um stuff to you know to unpack with that but I think we would just kind of like ignore it, keep going, but also understand that that comes from a specific place. And obviously people, you know, think that because of the way that they've been, you know, socialized. And after a while, we really haven't seen that every now and then you get a a comment or or two or whatever. But I think for the most part, if you're really thoughtful, I mean, we try to be really thoughtful about the stuff that we put out And trying to minimize the harm that that might do, which is kind of a difficult way to get into comedy because you have to be, you're trying to be both funny, but then you're also trying to be really caring and cognizant of the space that you're putting it out into, which is a place where, you know, a lot of people have massive opinions and people are going to disagree with you. And it's actually something that Alex Lee once said to us, which is a way that encapsulates how we work, is we... Think about when we're writing a sketch what are people feeling at the moment? What's their feeling? And then you build a character around that. And we're really just showing the personal effects of the politics around us. Um, And that's kind of our in, because it's human and it's about how people are engaging or interacting with the politics around them. And a lot of times we're asking questions like, whose feelings are we not considering or whose feelings um, or what's an interesting character in this or, or, you know, what would the person in power be thinking in a way that shows real hubris? Because a lot of times feelings are of like shame and of guilt and that's where the humour comes from when you're kind of playing up politicians. Um, but I think when you do that and you have a real human approach to your satire, um, people can see themselves or they can see a character or see someone that they relate to um which i think was that was the biggest like key for me to unlock satire in a new way because i think when i was at uni it was definitely more about you know the words and showing how clever i could be and about concepts and 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 i think the real shift has been especially on the, for the internet is trying to find a really human approach Um, to sketch and you know I think this is so funny all this being said what I do mostly is make one minute videos where I wear a wig and I run around going blah 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 like a lot of it's so stupid and so silly but I think that you know the conversations we have and my favorite part of the job is the first two hours of the pitch meeting or the first hour really where we're discussing like what is worth saying and what is not worth saying and I think I mean a really clear example of this is I think in our first year it was International Men Women's Day, and um, it, you know Jen and I were up there, and I think someone said, "Oh, what well, are you guys going to do a sketch about International Women's Day?" Because you know you're the women and you've started working here, and we sat down and we ended up having so many conversations about what that might be and like what that might look like and whether it's about you know men saying when's International Men's Day and what Women's Day actually looks like. And by the end of it, we were like, "There isn't actually anything really funny we want to say about this," so we just didn't. And that is one of my uh, one of my big philosophies. Um we'll get we'll get there because I mean you'll you'll get me while well, I won't stop talking. Um but one of my big philosophies is sometimes you don't um have to say anything. Um, that that being said, you know, obviously when you are silent on certain issues, that is a form of like oppression in itself because you're not trying to change things. But sometimes your voice isn't the voice that needs to be heard in an issue. And that is, you know, that should be the the, the grab rather than like sometimes you don't have to say anything. But sometimes your voice isn't the most important voice. And I think that is a big thing, which is a hot thing to contend with when your job is literally to use your voice and you have to write a sketch at the end of the day. Sometimes I get to the, the end of the day and I'm like, well, I don't think we should say anything. And then the boss is like, okay, but you have to do something. Yeah,
1: you're contractually obliged <laughs> to, say something. You have to say something. Sometimes the reason to enter into a debate is you are taking some taxpayers' money on behalf exactly. of <laughs> being involved in the debate.
2: Exactly. And then but in I that agree. Case, yeah, so I, yeah. love,
1: I love what you've said, which is that. Yeah. I think the idea of uh, Mm. what I try to think the way that I would put Mm. it in my own Mm. life is Mm. will my voice help or hinder what is going on here? Right, yes. so sometimes you know you might not even want to get involved, but you realize that you have a voice and a capacity to perhaps you know lend some weight or support to something. I think of like mm. a cause somebody's trying to raise some money for something, or like there is an issue that has been you know like a, that you're particularly passionate about that you want to raise some other voices, some Hardly. other people. There's a there's a room and space for that, but sometimes you're like, well, this is not about me, and I could mm. say something, but it's not really going to change anyone's mind, and it's only going to reinforce yeah. that people are, people who know me already know I think this and people who sometimes I say to people you want me to shut up because people sometimes just hate me instinctively like it doesn't really matter what I say they just don't like me much and if I'm saying it it's not going to help this debate Uh, Andrew Bolt could make a lot of reasonable points And I would not believe one of them Because I (laughs) have just decided That I don't trust anything that he says Okay Yeah So I love this Because when I look at your work Mm. That you do with Jenna The thing that comes across Particularly to me as a consumer of it Is that it is often very silly And very funny Mm. But it's, it never feels like you start with silly. It never feels like you come into the mm-hmm. office and say, here's my silly idea now, how can we justify it? It always feels like mm-hmm. you've had a great think about what it is that you're trying to do and then you found a silly and fun way to execute it. Like This is the best way for us to get this idea across that maybe it'll access some people who wouldn't respond to it if it was a little bit more worthy or wordy.
2: Yeah, I definitely think so. And I definitely think there's a lot of freedom when you play characters, because I think a lot of the times, cause I was at uni doing a lot of stand up and doing a lot of material about my own life and, and talking about, you know, me. And I think the real freedom I felt, cause Jen obviously came from an acting background where she loves the process of like empathy and finding new characters and finding new ways. For me, the real, um, you know, amazing spark that I had with her is being like, oh, this doesn't actually have to be about me and my voice. I can channel this through a character as well, which gave me a chance to like, you know, be a voice of, of other, you know, fictional or fantasy people, which gives you a lot of freedom. And also if you're a coward like me, you don't want to really, I think I'm actually not that, I mean, I I try to be funny when I try to be, but I unfortunately take myself very seriously.
1: (laughs) But that's okay. You're allowed to take yourself seriously. I think that's like I mean I think, you know, in general, what Mm. I really admire in people who like take them well, take you know their craft Mm. and what they're trying to do very seriously. I think that's But then I take
2: the craft seriously. (laughs) Like, <laughs> but you're
1: certainly not afraid to be silly or make you know, yourself the butt of a joke or like be embarrassing or any of those sort of things, which I think is, you know, somebody who just took themselves very seriously would not be willing to go out there and be publicly silly in that way, is what I would think. For I sure. Think, and and yeah. you know
2: what? I think that's been a huge change because I think when I was doing comedy, I would do a lot of self-deprecating gear. Like it would be very self-deprecating and it would be very kind of, you know, leaning towards the self-hatred. And I think more recently, and one of the reasons why, like, I've I've tried to distance my personal life and self from comedy is because I saw a lot of myself using comedy as this coping mechanism and trying to be, um, trying to make light of really difficult things that I was going through. And I think that is a really beautiful and valid thing to do because you're, you know, sharing light and you can make other people laugh and see things in themselves. But it became for me really unsustainable and all the negativity and the thoughts that I had in my mind were impacting my personal life like i had a lot of trouble with my relationships and um you know also i got caught into the whole like is my life just material for gear like trying to make decisions that i thought would be the funniest stories and the stuff that we always you know a lot of comedians do and i think i'd also see it around with my peers where you'd have a conversation with someone that was really kind of like heavy and you could see someone processing something and then you'd see them do gear about it and people laughing at that kind of trauma and that felt really hard to watch as well because I think um yeah and it's 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 the very you know the Hannah Gadsby like you know I don't want to humiliate myself on on stage anymore I think I definitely like when I watched that special I like wept for so long and was kind of like damn that's like some hard truths about not putting yourself down and and getting a laugh instead of like, you know, getting all the therapy in the world and slowly building yourself up again.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So you spoke very early on about the nature of collaboration and we've talked about, Mm. you know, almost yourself and Jenna as, you know, one person in a way, Mm. you know, in discussions around your work in particular here. Mm. So talk to me about what it's like to have, such an identifiable, like, comedy mm. partner, what that relationship mm. is like, how you've managed, you know, the, uh, you know, I I, I don't know, mm. like, what the level of your mm. friendship is, outside mm. work, like, you know, give, give me a little sense of the American Rosso of, you know. I <laughs> love <dinner>. it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, we... We are so close, like it's very sisterly. Like at the moment, you know, during um, lockdown over COVID, we were like living together as well, um, and so there is a lot of, a lot of, you know, closeness and a lot of friendship. And we, you know, we we always say we our friendship comes first, which is, I think really good and really beautiful and we are working really hard and we have worked really hard on communication and being able to manage a friendship and also like a, a comedy partnership and what that looks like. Because so much of our early stuff was like catching up for tea, having an hour chat and laughing so much and just like riffing and and ideas would just kind of flow from the conversations we'd have as two friends catching up about like, what have you been up to this week? Um, and it's almost like we actually have to schedule in times just for friendship. Like, especially when we're living together, like you have to schedule in times of quality time where you can just be friends We're like that close and, and, um, that kind of inseparable. And, um, it's been really good. I actually for, um, I think, and I think just for a random gift, I got, I found this book at this, um, at this like secondhand bookshop called powers of two about creative collaboration, and how people work together. And we kind of theorize and we think about it a lot and about, you know, passive and active, um, you know, working relationships and all that, all that kind of stuff. So we're very cerebral about our partnership and we talk about it a lot. And we talk about how we can, you know, be better friends to each other and, and support each other. Cause we also do different things of course. And, um, giving each other space to do that, but then coming together. And I I think for me, it's been the, the best, like, you know, and most formative and strongest relationship that's really allowed me to like be more vulnerable with my other friends because someone's like, you know, and this is the thing I'm like a classic only child, like very conflict avoidant, very scared of conflict. And I think Jenna like had a brother and had a lot more kind of like, you know, you could talk things out and things are okay. And I think we've, Really been able to like help each other through, uh, help each other through like communication stuff in a really like beautiful way. It's also so awesome to um, be recognized mostly in a duo, because when you're by yourself, people don't really recognize you or, or think about you as much. Like i am never, I've never recognized when I'm by myself, but when we're together, like people do come up to us or they'll, they'll speak to us, which is, is actually the dream because people like know what you do and they like it, but they don't know who you are. And I think that's, there's something really comforting about, you know, kind of wanting to protect a bit of the self and not have yourself out there or, or, um, and that that fits really nicely with um with where I am because I, I like to I like to not be even really noticed. Like sometimes someone will watch a sketch. Like I, I remember my my girlfriend's brother's sister watched a sketch, was shown a sketch of um of, of the contact traces. And then she's like, Oh, but can you show me one with Vic in it? And they not she didn't even know that that was me <laughs> in the sketch. But that happens so often. So often people when they meet me, they don't connect the dots really? Um, which is so is a, a huge relief, I think. Weirdly. I, I actually enjoy it. So what it. do you
1: yeah, okay. So what what do you think that mindset is about? Like what what's behind that? What is it about your personality or how was that formed mm. that you like a separation between you know, I mean, because it's a show-offy world, mm. you know, mm. like the very nature mm. of creating these things and particularly when, you know, particular aspects of them go viral, that is a little literal, yeah. de- you know, yeah. kind of demonstration of how modern fame works totally. and you can go from, you know, n- not anyone knowing who you are to millions of people all over the world seeing something that you made and identifying it. How? It must be weird for a start, anyway, that yeah. how quickly that can happen. But mm. why is it that you crave some mm. sort of disassociation between the two?
2: Well, I think early on, I, you know, was one of those kids that started really early, like dancing and singing and always performing. And I think so much of my identity was constructed around being a performer and mm. trying to do things to like make people happy and put on a show and put on a face. And I think it's actually been a weirdly like a a boundaries thing in in therapy of thinking well so much of my life I always just thought as a performer you just give and give and give of yourself to people and you know it, it comes with you know like people pleasing in your personal life or or you know putting yourself out a little bit or making yourself uncomfortable to like you know make the the room or the space slightly better for other people and I think performance is like you know, the, the big showy version of, of kind of inauthentic representation or, or, you know, performative representation. And I think that I growing up also, you know, the performance of being a woman, I was always quite taken with like, you know, photos and how people see you and the perception of things. And I think I was very conscious of that in the optics and how to be perceived in a certain way. Like I remember I used to take so many pictures as a, like a teenager and that became like a whole big identity and really being able to curate that. I think I was 13 when I first got Facebook and when your synapses are forming and you're starting to live a social life, I think it's the hangup of of feeling like that was so important for so long and seeing how much kind of damage that did to like any sense of authenticity. And I wonder how many people like, you know, people growing up in the social media age start to get fatigued or the issues issues that come with, you know, or or just how low you feel like. I know I read all these articles about like, you know, Instagram influencers and how they're actually really depressed and like TikTokers and, and this idea of, I think it is commodifying the personality and who you are. And when you don't actually have boundaries with what people, you know, can take from you, I think you can burn out super quickly if you already have this like people pleasing, um, kind of openness to you, trying to make everything better. I think I made myself very exhausted and very depressed for a really long time. And so now I really try to put up these boundaries, I think, um, just so I can survive and, 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 you know, keep going.
1: But that is fascinating in itself because it's something that I've always struggled with is the idea mm. of – and I'm so glad I didn't grow up fully in this age of, you know, mm. content creation, constant demand yeah. for – you know, because I, I do think it would have changed me in a very different way, you know, mm. because I don't think that I would have been as good as having boundaries, at least as mm. you seem to have got to the point of being able to go, no, because none of it's set up for boundaries. Yeah. It's yeah. all set up for please – either consume or make as much content as you possibly can well, totally. most of the time for nothing. Mm-hmm. And if you're not doing that, then you are a failure and that you're useless to this infrastructure that we've set up. So mm-hmm. as someone who lives in that world, I mean, you know, you create a lot of content that's distributed mm-hmm. in that world. And I'm sure that there's plenty of aspects of the internet and social media and all these sort of things that you think are great positives. Mm-hmm. But what is your genuine mm-hmm. relationship to you know, where, 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 perhaps maybe where you're at, Mm. but I think what I'm really asking Mm. is where do you think society is at in our relationship with, you know, media, social media?
2: I I really Mm. think we're getting to a point where we're starting to see, you know, the real dark side of it. I really think we are, um, because it is making us, you know, really anxious and really panicked and these things. It feels very trite to say, um, and i think it is definitely a case of it's it was this new this has all happened in the in the last like mm. what 15 years where it's endless possibilities and a lot of the times you can be rewarded for being vulnerable and sharing things about your life and opening up and part of me sometimes because i i think i i think i deleted instagram last year But it's sometimes I still get this like tinge of like, well, you're not optimizing. It's a a question of optimization. You're not optimizing your identity. Like you could be doing, you know, sponsorship things and you could be using this to sell this or to make this message or to make this social thing. It's this idea of there's always something that you could be doing. This idea of optimization that I think also fits into this like very, it's kind of like Brand, well, like self-identity as, as like a brand commodification kind of thing, is one of the last steps of like this like a late capitalist kind of mentality of trying to optimize and sell as much of yourself as you can because and to be honest you've seen it like we only really got like started in comedy because we were able to put stuff online and have people share it and there's so many ways that you know internet comedians can make it and can make a really good living I hope that people are getting to the point where they realize that so much of what we say, like a lot of I think there's this um, business of like oversharing or sharing of one's life um, in exchange for support or understanding or, or stuff that sometimes for me felt very um felt very fake or like that what I was presenting wasn't even wasn't even real. So that's again a convoluted answer to a question that I think could be answered being like I think we just need to think a little bit more about how we use it and the psychology behind what we're trying to say when we put stuff out. Cause I know when I wanna tweet something, I think I, I said to myself, What do I want from this or what do I expect from this? And a lot of times I just want like a hug. And then I'll go to my friend and I'll talk and I'll get a hug. And that sometimes feels Better? or oh, I don't know, yeah. but be- because I still think that it can be like social media can be used in such a good way, and so many people will use it to make people laugh and make people happy. I just think it's a you have to put your needs and your emotional demands first and actually think about what that looks like.
1: That's the bit that I think is the genius behind what you're saying, is that you have a choice. Mm. You 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 can put up your own boundaries you know, When yep. it comes to social media And I'm glad that we are finally having this conversation Because mm. it does feel like We got the keys, 15 years ago They handed yeah. us the keys to Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory exactly. And we were all like, this is amazing We are never going to eat a salad again For the rest of <laughs> exactly. our lives And then 15 <laughs> years later we're having a lot of trouble breathing And we're not sure what went wrong <laughs> yeah. it's, <just> like-
2: <laughs> it's very true
1: okay so a collaboration with jenna you have like Mm. you know this great bond this great friendship and Mm. what about you you i mean you said collaboration in general Mm. as being one of your key principles though and one of the things that you enjoyed so Mm. what is it about collaboration that you find particularly attractive as a performer
2: i think it really comes down to like that connection because that essentially what we do as performers is connection. And we're trying to connect to people and form a connection with audience and also like connect ideas with other ideas. And the times I get, like I had one yesterday when I'm kind of writing, even if it's online, like I was writing on a doc with Ben Jenkins and Vidya Rajan just writing and you see your brain's kind of working together and building things at the same time. And I just got like that little shiver. Like I get, I honestly, it becomes so physical in my body. I get like goosebumps when I see minds working together to make something big and funny. And, um, Oh dude, I'm getting, I get emotional talking about. It. So embarrassing. I get emotional talking about it because that for me is like the core of it. It's like, people coming together and using their minds and making something bigger than yourself. And that, you know, it again, makes you feel a part of something and makes you feel like you're doing something nice, but it's just that very act that for me was always what was driving me. And whether people even saw that, it was just that room of connecting with people who have ideas and shared passions. Uh, That's it.
1: Okay, so it has a broader conversation, I guess, Mm. that I'm interested in, which is Mm. where we're at society because all these things we're talking about, you know, neoliberalism, you know, the Mm. rise of social media, these things Mm. have all been focused generally on the individual. You're talking about the individual brand. You're talking Mm -hmm. about the idea that you can achieve anything. You can Mm -hmm. have everything. You can have these products. Mm -hmm. We've got all these products that are tailored specifically for you. Your Yelp review is important. You, 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 Mm -hmm. you. And yet- I constantly seem to look at the world and think I'm not sure that is the direction we should be going in as a human race because Mm. most of the great things we've done as a human race are we work when we work together the reason that like I mean we're top of the food chain not because either of us could beat a giraffe in a fight one-on-one we are absolutely no good like you know we are only good because we work together and yet so much Mm. of the way society is set up seems to be absolutely tearing us apart even this worshipping of you know even this idea that we let billionaires happen is yeah. the idea that there's a part <laughs> of our brain because yeah. it, like if you're just setting out a society you're going yeah. well here's how we'll set out society like half of yeah. the people will have fuck all but 50 yeah. people will have like as much as fuck all yeah. the rest of those people have it's just not a good way to run the society on any So where did this – you say you're an only child. Sometimes the cliche of the only child would be that you become the ultimate individual. Why have you gone the opposite direction and become the ultimate collaborator?
2: I think it's because I've seen what trying to be the ultimate individual looks like because that for me, when I was growing up and in high school, all I wanted was to, you know – succeed and do well and get the perfect marks and go to the, you know, the best school and try this. And, 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 and again, self optimize because of this individualism of like, you know, trying to, trying to be the, the best person you can be. And I just saw kind of like how hollow and miserable that made me especially when you try to like chase things like, you know, fame or like, um, well, you know, success, what we consider success. I think really early on, I just felt really miserable. And then the moment I started reaching out and being like, what what, do, what does this actually look like when I work with other people? Or what do I actually like about what I'm doing? Which a lot of times just being creative. And I didn't need it to be a, about me to be happy. Oh my God, that's so funny. Well, I don't care, I'm just gonna say it anyway. You know, you, <laughs> you, you, you know how you sound, but you say it anyway. Um, i think i think that's really it and i also think weirdly it's a lot of theory and reading a lot of like weird like economic theory actually one of my favorite documentarians adam curtis does this amazing series called mm-hmm. century of the self where he tracks a lot of um this this cult of individualism like to to freud and and this idea of the individual and and you know freud's nephew creating like pr and advertising and i i think you know i'll comedy collectives called Freudian Nip I think there's also a part of us that's like an interest in in you know Freudian theory and all that kind of theoretical stuff that also does inform um a sense of you see how constructed this cult of the individual is and even I don't know reading a lot of um I read a lot of like all the books I read growing up were like by strong men like I read and we, when we get to the you know, life philosophy, I read a lot of Nietzsche and I read a lot of Tolstoy and these amazing men who understood life. And, and even like, God, I grew up thinking that Woody Allen was like the funniest dude in the whole world. And I think when you hero worship these individuals and these men, and then you start to see what that actually looks like underneath when you start to, you know, read about how, you know, Leo Tolstoy treated his wife who copy edited war and peace seven times or how Woody Allen did, you know, all like, the worst things. He's the, the absolute worst. And I think that when you also see that from like a feminist standpoint, which is again, like a very collective and communal minded philosophy, you start to see how the code of the individual and this individual power, even the existence of billionaires is based on this very fraught system that treats people people really badly if you're off offside where that power is so i think it's definitely a combination of like you know reading a lot of feminist theory and, and reading a lot of or seeing a lot of these great men like these monoliths like the harvey weinsteins being toppled because he made all my favorite movies And all the movies that made me want to be a filmmaker. And so I think you start to completely, well, you become so disillusioned, but then you also think, what is the system that allowed this to happen? And why did we choose greatness, you know, inverted commas, greatness over the people that suffered? And now we're only hearing these stories. Now we're hearing it. And I think it's very much, again, we're just all products of our time. But I think that definitely informs this philosophy of like, when you put the individual at the top especially you know in the arts or representational medias or even in in economics where it's the individual it's also crushing for that individual and also crushing for everyone around around them
1: so obviously um it it raises an interesting conversation which is this Mm. idea of can you separate the art from the artist or the Mm. thoughts from the thinker Mm. um how do you feel about that? And obviously, I'm not necessarily looking for a black and white answer. But you know, you, you, it might be that you think that mm. some ancient—I mean, look—I think there's mm. great wisdom that's come from mm. religious texts around the world. The same mm. religious texts that have been mm. used for great evil. Like, it does mm. not mean that the lesson can't be learnt um, without you know. So, but I'd love to know what your you know what your thoughts around separating the art from the artist are.
2: My favorite question, because I actually have I've thought about this a lot. When I was studying philosophy I studied a lot of um theories of personal identity like what makes a person and there's this branch of philosophy called narrative theory which is what makes a person is their narrative or their story over time I'm really interested in taking that that lens and looking at text or representational media as a story in and of itself and my uh, the way that I address the artist versus the artist the art versus the artist is I actually don't think that is a a, a false dichotomy. I think it's just the theory of infinite stories. And it's the story that we tell as we get new information. So when we consume any text, for example, for such a long time, my favorite film was Annie Hall. That for me was the perfect film. That's what I aspired to make when I was growing up. That story in itself meant so much to me. And then I read the story of like Woody Allen and him growing up and that added to that story. And then I read about what happened with Woody Allen and that added to that story. So instead of just this film that exists in the silo, when you add the context of an ever growing network of stories, your story can change and you can learn new things and texts fit into the context of life. So Mm -hmm. I still see that little clip of a film for what it is. And I can look at the certain filming techniques that I think are amazing. And I look at that, Film of where it came in my life and how I am now, and how that's completely changed. But that's all part of the network of of intimate or infinite intimate, well, both stories that we tell ourselves. And I think that we are the authors of how we let that affect us, and also how we let that affect society. Um, So, in terms of like what that means for holding people to account, that's part of the story. And I don't think that diminishes or changes how we see the film, but it changes the overall story that we tell. And as long as that story is the one that we feel is most in line with our values, we can move on and still be able to see the colour and and everything.
1: Okay. Now, this is great, Mm. by the way, I'm I'm loving this. So, um, holding people to account versus or coinciding with or mm. in the discussion with like roads back to redemption and mm. like what our balance of those are in our society at the moment and mm. how you think we're going with that because I agree absolutely with you that mm. like people should be held to account for what they have done. Yeah. Um, yep. I wonder if we've got our head correctly around who we offer roads to redemption totally. to and who we don't and how that fits into that conversation.
2: Totally. Well, I have another term for you because I think about this stuff all the time. My ethical framework for like how to measure who is a good person is is virtue ethics, which is kind of an Aristotelian thought of like measuring someone's worth of their actions over time. So an aggregate of their behavior over a period of time. And I think for roads to redemption, I think it is very much a, a case and we say a case by case basis that do that. You know, there's a lot of things that overlap, but it, it is very much about someone's moral virtue over time and their actions. And the thing is, people can change. You can have someone who's done something in the past that is bad and awful. Like I did awful things at university as well. Like, you know, everyone has had difficulties and, and acts in certain ways. And if you really Believe in someone's desire or, or passion to change and to grow and to develop. I, I think there is a path to redemption. So much of that redemption, that path to redemption doesn't necessarily include having your voice heard because it is a choice to be a public person. So much of that can be sitting and finding a new way to live your life. Like I think of, you know, the, the Louis C.K.'s, for example, like again, grew up, adored his stand up one of the reasons like his shame i i i loved to i love to shit and i think that kind of stepping back and for him to, you know, try to heal a lot of those parts of himself. And there's there's a way that he can live and not, you know, be murdered that doesn't necessarily have him run his own special or, or take up spaces in, in certain rooms. I think it is a complete privilege to have your voice heard by people. and But it's also not the only way to live one's life. And it's not the best way to live one's life. I mean, you can still have a creative outlet and say things and write things without needing the acclaim or the money to go with it. So I think that we look at like having our voices out there or being seen as certain things is like the be all and end all, but that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. You can live a really valid life without needing a Netflix special. Um, In fact, I'd say maybe a better life, who knows? So,
1: so that, okay, yeah. now let's talk about yourself then. You talk about mm. the idea that there were things at university that you did mm. that you, mm. you know, are not proud of. How do you – and I don't mean publicly reconcile those things. Mm. I'm talking about mm. the work someone might do on their mistakes behind the scenes, which I think is the bit mm. that we're – in fact – We just haven't found a way to truly and properly articulate that, which is the idea that sometimes you'll find something, like, I mean, this is Mm. a pretty general example, but Mm. it just gives us a framework to work on. Mm. Somebody finds something that somebody said 12 years ago. Yeah. And there is absolutely no evidence that they Mm. believe that or say that or whatever, Mm. you know, 12 years later. In fact, perhaps there's a chance they've done a whole bunch of, you know, work and regrets and, you know, other things to move away from the person they were then. Well, totally. how do mm. we deal with that and how, mm. how, do, how, how do you personally deal with that? I mean, because we've all got them. I think, that's, yeah. I think this is an important part of the conversation yeah. and it's why every yeah. time I have one of these conversations, mm. I like to re- re- reiterate the same thing, mm. which is mm. I have them. There are yeah. things that I have done in my life mm. that I am absolutely not proud of. Yeah. That, yeah. Some of them people know about. Some of them are things that people do not know about. Yeah. I feel equally embarrassed by the ones that people know about and the ones that people don't know about. Like it does not well, affect totally. me one way or the other, mm. whether it's a public embarrassment or not. Mm. And you have to go away and do a whole bunch of your own reconciling mm. with those things. How do you yeah. do that? What's your process?
2: Again, it's such a great question. I think that, when you really do you know the work on yourself when you take the time and you know you go through the therapy and you live in line with your values and you actually think about what your values are and you actually care so deeply about being a person who cares and does things i think there is a lot of Solace in that self belief of knowing who you are and knowing what you care for and what you stand for. And I think when you have that, that emanates around the people around you who can see you, who know you. And You know, I think in the court of public opinion, I guess that's somewhat helpful when people can, you know, vouch for you or say their piece. But for me, I really just care about the people in my life, the people who know me, they know the ins and outs of who I am because I'm way more than someone who exists as a public entity to do or say a bunch of stuff. And even if in the court of public opinion, someone says something, you know, or there's a a, a, word, a word on the street or, you know, a tweet. This thing? All those conversations are very flat on one level and without nuance. I just really care about the nuance in my life. And I care about knowing and understanding myself as like a complex person with hypocrisies who can have done something one time but is now living in this certain life. I just care about the people around me who know me. And those are the people that I want to work with. Those are the people that I care about. And that's the stuff like they are actually knowing someone. I think that's the thing. It's, it's how we actually know and relate to each other because online, you actually don't know anything. And it's the same thing. You don't know what people are going through. You don't know their stories. You have to be honest with yourself about, you know, whether you're being more harmful or being, you know, a really positive influence in someone's life. And also a bit of humility and being able to step back and say, you know what, What, everyone's trying to be this perfect, beacon of virtue and goodness. Sometimes the most strength when I get really emotional is when I see people like admitting that they have done something bad or that they've, you know, lived in a way that is often, to be honest, colored by our society and our influences around us at the time. But if we constantly strive to be the better person that we want to be, I think that's so, that's, you know, there's a lot of virtue to that. And that's what I care about. And you know, you know, it in yourself and the people around, you know, it and the court of public opinion. I kind of, couldn't care less because I know me and and my friends know me.
1: Okay. So it's a good spot to ask if you have a, I mean, we've talked about various philosophies Mm. and life Mm. philosophies, but Mm. do you have a life philosophy? It is the hook of and conceit of this podcast.
2: Yes, I absolutely do. And I laugh at myself because it is in Latin and um, it is. it comes from a bit of, um, oh God, you know, again, a bit of Nietzsche that I was reading, funnily enough, when I was in, in high school. And it's kind of what got me through the HSE, but it's this Latin phrase, amor fati, which translates to love your fate. And it's this Nietzschean concept. It's also kind of relates to the stoic conceits of acceptance, but it's an enthusiastic acceptance of what your life throws at you and what your life is and who you are and and why. Um, And so I think even in the difficulties, like, and when things are really difficult, I go back to, I just have to love my fate, what is fated, uh, what is put in front of me, all the ingredients that make up my life. I have to love them, the good and the bad, accept them. Um, there's, you know, again, there's a question about what is fate and can you change your fate. But I, I think in that philosophy, part of my fate is being someone who is able to make changes in my life and and be empowered to make those changes. So I'm not necessarily fated to what I am fated towards. That's a whole other philosophical question. But it is this stoic acceptance and enthusiastic acceptance and love, which comes with many complex emotions of of fate as 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 life happens.
1: Okay, so these conversations, obviously, Mm -hmm. you know, the interest in philosophy, philosophy is just a Mm -hmm. way of us trying to work out Mm -hmm. the meaning of life. Mm -hmm. And that's what this show is, really. like. Mm I I mean, ideally, that's what I would have really done with this Mm -hmm. show. It would be all that bullshit that we do for the first Mm -hmm. 45 minutes would just be cut out of the podcast. And I'd be like, so what's the meaning of life? And let's just (laughs) talk about that for the rest of the show. But that is... Mm. Is is that at the heart of your curiosity? Do you have a curiosity around mm. why we mm. are here? Why do you think we are here? I mean, I ask this mm. question normally right at the end, but it feels relevant now, which mm. is what do you think happens when we die?
2: Mm. It's, a, it's a great question. I do believe that nothing happens after you die. I think a lot of my philosophical thoughts or positions or tr- ways around understanding life comes from like an existential school of thought, which is the idea that existence precedes essence or that we exist and there, then construct our essence around that. And we make a kind of like a choice with how we view the world. And I think that there is no real answer to why we exist or like how we got here. Like that's all science, you know, like this stuff about what is, a, you know, neurochemistry brains, how did we evolve over time? But once we exist, which we do, we have been fated to our own existence. Um, we then can construct how we give that meaning. And so that is the existential in in me being like, we construct our own meaning. And, you know, I'm, again, you can tell quite verbal and like to talk things out and like to, play and you know make my own ways around things so I have a very uh, actively informed um, system of meaning which is something that I've created for myself which allows me to process the pain and the ups and the downs which is this combination of like zen stoicism and kind of I like to chuck in a bit of like fun like I like absurdist thought that you know we can just have a bit of play and that the world is absurd and within it we can just you know make the you know take the mickey out of ourselves and laugh at things when we need to. Um, so I think, you know, when we die, nothing happens. I have a a physicalist take on like identity, like the human body, I think is just this amazing machine that includes this brain and the brain creates thoughts because that's what we've been evolved to do. That's why we're like, you know, the top of the food chain. So with that, we can just, um, yeah, have fun and and make our own meaning and and try to be as, 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 you know, good to each other as we can.
1: Uh, On a scale of, uh, we're living life great. Mm. Two we're living life wrong. Let's mm. go one to ten, the arbitrary scale of you know things <laughs> when they're in these examples. Uh, with uh, 10 being we are absolutely nailing it. We are the peak of what we could be as a human mm. species and mm. aren't we just amazing? and mm. zero being we are living life completely wrong. Where do you personally feel we fall on that scale?
2: <laughs> well, on a world view, I truly believe, I'm quite pessimistic actually, like I think we're about a three. I I feel we're not doing so well um, as a collective. I, in fact, maybe even a two, I think we're doing really badly in terms of living the best life we can live. I think we live in a real state of chaos and it's really hard to stay optimistic. Um, I think we're moving into this like um, economic zone of like techno feudalism where we've decided that certain people can control huge, insane amounts of our wealth. And you know what that means for us is like a serfdom of like, you know, being slaves to, you know, systems that are bigger than us. That being said, I do also believe that everything happens in ebbs and flows and is, is somewhat determined from the things that came before us. Um, I, I'm a determinist. I I, um, I think that everything that's happened is has been determined by what happened before it. So I'm not surprised we're here and there are pathways to a better life. I'm trying to think of feudalism and how that led to like, I don't know, the French revolution. I think things are going to get really bad. Um, and then if we're aware of them, we might take political action. There might be small little resistance movements along the way, but I see things in like this grand pattern of like waves that we're just going to keep ebbing and flowing. And I, I kind of feel we're in a bad one right now. I don't know how it can get worse. I do know how it could get better. And I think it comes from, you know, this, um, sense of communal compassion, understanding, and um, and collectivism. I think you're spot on. I think we're reaching the bloody end of individualism and it's starting to, like, move into our collective thoughts that we can live a better life. But right now, it's bad.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, Very correct, bad. <laughs> correct answer. There are no correct answers, but that is absolutely the correct answer. Um, you, you've touched a few times on the philosophies around feminism and mm. it's... <clears throat> I like it's been great for me this Mm. like doing this show Mm. I've really enjoyed the process that I've had of talking to so many people from so many different Mm. experiences and I always feel like this is an absolute learning experience for me as well so like please excuse um, Mm. like any sort of naivety I'd rather ask without like Mm. pretending I know things one of the examples that constantly comes up for me Mm. one of the ways that I was most challenged around Mm. my perceived feminism was Mm. I think that Like I pretty much identified, you know, I would have been, Mm. you know, 10 years ago, absolutely the you know this is mm-hmm. what a feminist looks like sort of guy yeah. right yeah, yeah, yeah like you know have come to a deeper understanding that it's probably mm-hmm. up up to others to make those mm-hmm. judgments than it is to me to self to self-proclaim those Joss mm-hmm. Whedon really made me lose a lot, a lot of faith in people <laughs> it's a lot of my identity that was tied up in Joss Whedon it yep. turned out he was my Woody Allen so yeah yeah <laughs> But um, I I was challenged Mm. by Felicity Ward earlier on, you know, when Mm. she was one of my original guests on the show. Mm. And we were going through this list of sort of practical ways that Mm. you could be a better feminist. And one of them was Mm. about consuming more female-made art. Mm. And it was one of those ones that the minute that it was said to me, Mm. I realised it. If I was looking through my sort of wardrobe Mm. of what I was doing well and not doing well, that was my two out of ten. That was, you know... There was a lot more, you know, male-led bands, male-led podcasts, male-led books, whatever. Whatever it was, that's what I would consume. So Mm. regardless of my intent, my worldview was definitely just being, you know, informed and reinforced by Mm. these same voices and these same points of view. And for a while, Mm. it was almost – it was almost uncomfortable Mm. to be like – Purposely going out and going, no, I'm going to sit down with that, like Beyonce album or whatever it was that yeah. I just was like, this is not for me. And then I was yeah. suddenly like, this is really important to all these people. Maybe yeah. just like take some time with it and sit down with it and see what you can get out of it and see what other people can get out totally. of it. And so, um, what about you? What's mm. your relationship with? Your feminism, Like, mm. was it always a huge part of your life? Was it something that your family sort of, you know, mm. raised you with or was there like a moment at school or somewhere mm. in your journey that you really yeah. started to identify, you know, what it was mm. like for a woman in this world and your thoughts around it?
2: Such a good question. I was the girl in year eight when my best friend, Erica came out to me as a feminist in year eight. This is 2008. She's like, I'm a feminist. I was the girl that made fun of her and said, we don't need feminism. Like we're sm- like we're smarter than the boys. Like who gives a shit? So I was the skeptic, and I was like, yeah. I don't care if this is a man's world. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be better than the boys at their own game. That was my like individualistic kind of like. I, we don't need to lift anyone up, whereas, because I am strong enough to like beat these rules that they've like you know constructed or whatever. That was me growing up in high school. So I, I came to it. I think at at university, and I had one of those real like awakenings of. of 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 both lived experiences, seeing the difficulties that I was very um, kind of naive about um, that women face, just, you know, like how you're treated in a nightclub and all that kind of stuff where, you know, it's a combination of like the lived experience and then also sadly a lot of the theory, um, you know, reading those kind of texts and um, also realising. So I think that was was a huge change from the individualistic kind of like pull yourself up by your bootstraps and Rand kind of like women don't need your handouts or whatever. And then when I started reading a lot of philosophy and especially Kimberly Crenshaw is an incredible philosopher and and theorist. And she writes about intersectionality, which is when you take feminism, which is the idea that, you know, it's basically the idea of equality and, and finding, you know, those areas of inequality and trying to make them better through the lens of like gender, which I think is a really easy one to look at when it's like, you know, a half the population kind of thing and a very clear intersection. And so many women can unite and come together and see that intersectionality is about looking at the intersections of oppression that fall you know on the, along the lines not only of gender but of like race of class ability and i think those are the discussions that are happening now definitely a lot with race in the last couple of years and that's been really important because you know i think as you know as a white woman you think your work is done when you feel empowered and i think that's a lot of problems with like white feminism is you fail to see that feminism is about you know, equality and about finding people whose voices have been oppressed or haven't been able to be empowered by their identity and making the world a better place and a more equal and fair place. What that also means a lot... I think as, you know, as, as a white woman and a feminist is you have to, again, work as hard to read texts by people of colour, to actually reach out to people of different levels of ability. I think there's going to be really interesting discussions about ability, about, I think also neurodiversity is a really important and interesting one. Obviously, I, I care about, it. I've had a lot of, you know, issues with mental health, but looking at like invisible illness and the things that stop us and hinder us um, that, are, that, are, that are bigger, that then you know that what we see, but also issues of like class is a huge one. And I know when when you chat to to Jenna, she's so passionate about class because she grew up, you know, girl from the gong, different, you know different social milieu. Like I I grew up, like I was a scholarship kid, but my parents had a lot of like um, intellectual depth and wealth in in terms of their life. And and so I definitely was the beneficiary of a lot of like, you know, theory, but Jen had a very different life to me. Um, And so we talk about class a lot. Like I was always the the poor kid in a, in the, in the best place, you know? And that's kind of like that, you know, the reason I I'm very comfortable around these rooms and having these conversations, but there's bloody chip on my shoulder. And I always feel like I have to work 10 times harder just to feel like I deserve to be anywhere. Um, so I think my relationship to feminism is this idea of really opening up what that looks like. And it's also a, a practice and I also think that it's my feminism is imperfect. Um, there's many different types of feminisms, but I really try to think about that and, and, and go back into it and, and let that be the lens through which I view the world is, is whose voices are being silenced. How am I taking up space? I don't necessarily, you know, deserve to be taking up space. Um, and how can I keep, you know, informing myself um, of that? But it, you know, it is hard, and I think the problem with the system of capitalism is it's so all this kind of thinking, this kind of emotional labor, this work that we do is so unrewarded unless we try to monetize it through, you know, re- representational means. And I think that so much of the time, when I feel that I fail, it's because I am considering, oh, I need to make more money, or like I need a paycheck, or I need it, it's easier for me to do this. And I that for me, I find myself when I feel like I'm failing is when my economic situation um is at odds with my values of feminisms and that I'm not perfect at all. And I think we talk about this a lot, like you, and that's what it is to like sell out and stuff is when sometimes you just have to do the gig, even if it's not perfect or, or but I think when you collectively take a stand and it's much easier when you are with a partner or with a group of people where you can be like, actually we can stand up, for what we believe in instead of having to just take the money and, and feel shit about ourselves, you know.
1: And so much of what you're talking about there, the conflict that you have mm. to fight on an individual mm. level mm. is like systematic in Absolutely. nature. Absolutely, You are literally talking about the system needs to change yes. for this to be an easier thing to address because the times when you talk about selling out, mm. what you're really doing mm. is just going, fucking hell, like this is actually just the game. Yeah, This is yeah. the system that is set yeah. up it's the argument that tends to be had around, um, mm. you know, w- women, uh, female representation mm. in politics. Mm. So there is this whole idea of, you know, like you said, you know, well, the women just have to be as good, you know, yeah. better than the men at yeah. their own game. Yeah. Or we could pr- just have a game that was equally Yeah, Able for everyone to play And then we could just see How many men and how many women there are But if there is That disproportionate representation Clearly there Mm. is something About the system that itself And Mm. I would argue It's the days away from home And you know All these sort of things That Mm. you know Just don't make it An equal playing field For men men and women To Mm. enter into that industry So Mm. often there's only so much an individual can do to change the system. Like it's good that you're doing your compost at home, but unless we have systematic changes about the way that we, you know, recycle or we use energy and these sort of things, then it is much more a personal gesture. So, okay. Now, (laughs) in this area, where do you see your responsibility? Like how much of the problems that, you know, we are facing in society come down to individual action versus Mm -hmm. like systems need to change?
2: I think the most harmful form of individual action is like, and it is also, you know, systemic is, is the inaction and the lack of collectivism. I'd say it's the fact that we are trapped and we think, Oh, like, this is like a, it's a, it's a, it's a collective problem. It's a problem with the system. Therefore, as an individual, I don't really have to do anything. That's the problem because collectively if you say oh well the problem is that you know we don't have the right recycling bin i'd say the most virtuous act would be to like you know come into your community or like look at how you can affect change or work with people to change the system i think that because of the way society's structured we're really not that great at working together or having these conversations or like working towards something that's really good. And that, that being said, like I'm a hypocrite, like I don't march to my local council every day and and demand another bin for soft plastics, which is, I, I, you know, I would love to, and I'd love to do it. And I think that's the real sadness that I feel is, is feeling like you always could be doing more. Um, but that also like feels really, um, you know, indulgent to believe that. So this is the the trap that I have no answer for. I would love for someone to say, oh no, but like you shouldn't feel bad. It's a a system, it's so terrible. But you know what, the way that I justify it is if I can make small acts of resistance, everyday resistance through the stuff that I put out, the conversations that I have with my friends, you know, reading a new thing and, and sharing that if there's small little waves that are heading or tiny little steps in the right direction, I feel I can sleep at night. Um, and I, and I think as long as I stay active in my mind about that and just try to do one community minded thing a week, to be honest, like in a lot of therapy, like you, you know, for mood management, they say your actions have to be in line with your values. If you remind yourself when you actually care, like I value being a community minded person, usually when I'm depressed, I think, Have I done anything that is community-minded today or this last week? And if the answer is no, I kind of go, okay, well, let's think about what I can do. And it can be small. Your community can, you know, be your neighbourhood. It can be, you know, your close group of friends. You can reach out and those are small ways to, like, make small acts of good. Funnily enough, I'm I'm binge-watching this show, Friday Night Lights at the moment on on Binge.
0: Yeah. I love that show
2: and I think what I love about it is that, you know, Coach – um, Coach and Tammy Taylor, um, they're a husband and wife, one of the best representations of a married couple on screen, I think.
1: Uh, where, where are you Where are you up to, by the way, in the show?
2: I've just started season four.
1: Okay. Because, like, again, and this is no spoilers, yeah. but there, okay. there is something that happens in the, the final episode of the, <gasps> the show that I'm not going to give away in any abs- way, but I would just say your observations about the nature yeah. of their marriage is just... Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen a better representation of a marriage yeah. on screen. And yeah. no, I like agree. This the show absolutely resolves because I always think at the heart of it their show was yeah. that show was almost about just their marriage and their relationship. Exactly. And exactly. Yeah, all I would say is it also finishes that way in a really fucking good and satisfying way. So anyway. It's good times, anyway.
2: Well, that's ex- and that's it. That's exactly it. And I think there's really so. You're, what powerful, is the Latin yeah. for "clear
1: eyes, full hearts can't lose"? Because that's what we're <laughs> going to find out.
2: That is such a good question. I'm going to find that out. But I think you're spot on because th- I think what mirrors and what really like I love about it is it's all about their relationship. In small ways, they compromise, listen to each other, and work as a as a partnership and how that emanates to their wider actions of how they, you know, stand for what they believe in how they have this like feet in the ground with their values. And sometimes, and this is, you know, sometimes what is really radical, and this is my real care for the last year. I've, like in November, I got into a relationship that really felt like I was bringing my full authentic self to this relationship. It's one of my first girlfriends I've ever had, which is also quite a new and interesting realization for me about my own sexuality. Um, And I think dedicating myself to that partnership as well, like a really beautiful, strong, romantic relationship where you are learning and you are listening and being compassionate and, and learning about what your needs are, learning about what it's like to not have certain needs met or meeting your own needs that feels like an active resistance weirdly in the world because you're choosing like love and you're choosing listening and you're choosing collectivism and so I think really having strong interpersonal romantic relationships does feel like and I'm also Jewish weird I haven't brought that up a real mitzvah is like a, a good deed or something that is just good for the sake of being good I think a real mitzvah is is um connecting to someone else and and building and being vulnerable and learning and letting that emanate across your your actions so you know my my radical politics right now is just being in love and let's give that a round of applause everyone I think
1: it's beautiful. Hashtag blessed. Hashtag blessed. um, Do you think about death is death something that is present in your thoughts is part of your you know like understanding mm. of various philosophies in relation to you know what life means what death mm. means
2: I mean if we're going to get real like I think for a lot of my life death has felt like this amazing like option of of release and letting like it just things ending and a kind of an end to a lot of like my internal struggles mm-hmm. that's like a really dark depressed kind of Response, and I think that so much of even my philosophical reading—you know, reading Hume's on suicide and like learning about, you know, you know what it what it means to be given the gift of life and to continue it, and the ethics of like ending your own life, and even to be able to be in a place where you read about the ethics of ending your life—you have to be in a dark place. But um, I think death has always felt like a, a, a you know peace, to be honest, and it's been about choosing the the life that is hard and living through that and and being like as present and active and as as making it as beautiful as you can be has been the real challenge so it I think in that sense it's 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 a beautiful thing because every day when you're living you're choosing to live and I think that's kind of kind of nice there was a, a beginning where i was like you know like death and that's all like in you know, the natural cycle of life i was an anti-natalist for a really long time which is a philosophy that descri- ascribes a negative value to um life or being born. And so I was like, I'm not having children for the very philosophical reason that I think that it is, um, it is a harm to bring another life into the world because everyone will suffer. And that you can see the depth of my depression when, when someone's like, for, you know, philanthropic reasons, because there's two main reasons why you don't want to have children. There's like the, the, well, the philanthropic reason is like, oh, it's bad for climate change, overpopulation, but the misanthropic reason, sorry, that's what I was kind of obsessed with, was this idea that bringing a new person in would just make them suffer. And I think I believed that for a really, really long time. And I still don't know how I feel about children. Like, I don't know if my girlfriend and I will ever afford IVF. Like, who knows? But I think the philosophical question about death feels... A lot less juicy than the philosophical question around life, because in the same way that we choose not to die, we choose to keep living. I think the choice to create new life, especially when a lot of those cases, you know, in queer couples, includes IVF and and manufactured ways of, of creating life. I'm in, so interested in the ethics of of you know child rearing, being a mother, bringing new life into the world, and and the what that does because that feels very active whereas death feels like a very passive way to kind of just put everything to sleep and and for it to all end um so that's i think about birth a a lot a lot more than death death i'm just kind of like chill whenever whatever shakira shakira i don't know
1: that's uh yeah that's interesting to me Mm. so like firstly i just Mm. want to speak just really briefly because i like whenever this Mm. comes up on the show Mm. i always like to talk about this because i think it is Mm. under talked about which is this idea Mm. of there, We all understand, I think, well, we're having a greater understanding around what mm. it looks like when someone is suicidal mm. or might, that mm. someone might feel suicidal or thoughts we identify as being suicidal. Mm. Um, mm. But there's this other thing that I, I don't think I've ever been suicidal in my life, but there are many times in my life that I would have been very happy mm. to die. Like, yes. you know, where I just, like, even recently, like, yeah. I, went, I went and got my uh, AstraZeneca vaccine. And of course, it's yeah. the one where you have a very small chance, one in two and a half mm-hmm. million chance that I might have a blood mm-hmm. clot. And there was yeah. still that darkest bit of my brain that was like, yeah. yeah. And people were like, are you not worried about the blood clot? And I was yeah. like, I wouldn't say this out loud, but I knew in the back of my head, there was a part of my brain yeah. that was like, we're hoping for the blood clot. We're hoping yeah. we're the, we are the one. Like, you know, it's not... Yeah. And
2: yeah, I, th- I think I'm the exact same where it's, I never, I don't, I, I'm, I've never really been suicidal, but that thought of death has been kind of like, well, bring it on, bitch, mm. like, whatever. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I, I That really, really resonates with
1: diary. me. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I always like with yeah. <laughs> I, I It was one of those things that I just like to yeah. always talk about when it comes up, because I yeah. think, I yeah. bet there's a whole bunch of other people who also have that. Oh. So, Big
2: time. That really, really resonates with me.
1: Okay. Look, I'm Ugh, conscious yeah. of time, but I uh, have some more standard mm. questions that I ask yeah. people on the show, so I'm going to continue mm. to ask them. So um, what is the best piece of advice that you were ever given by anybody?
2: Um, I think it's probably like the most recent one is probably from my therapist about... Um, you know, making space for yourself and, and setting boundaries um, and working towards like really knowing what those are and, and, and knowing what you need at a particular moment is, is kind of the thing that's most helpful for me ever. Is a, I'd, It would take me five years to answer that. i would have to go through every catalogue of answers. And that one for me feels the most important
1: at the moment. Uh, w- w- when you're at your best, mm. like what does that look like?
2: I, when I'm at my best, I'm like so excited by life. Like I'm so excited by everything and I just, yeah, I I get emotional thinking about it, but I just, I just want to see everything and be a part of everything. And I could just take a look at a tree and go, "Woo, that looks awesome. And I I think I'm just excited by the possibilities of of what life can do.
1: Um, You've already covered this in one answer, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to just see if you have another answer as well. Mm Um can you identify something in your life mm-hmm. that you used to believe and now mm-hmm. you believe the complete opposite We obviously talked about it talked about it in mm-hmm. the antenatal conversation so there might not yes. be another thing but is there <laughs> is, is there another thing
2: well I, I think I think the main one is actually this this cult of the individual I think I really believed heavily in that if you did all the right things as a, an individual and you know pulled yourself up by your bootstraps and followed all the rules that you could live and achieve this amazing life that would be great and worthwhile and I th- you know at the expense of everything else and I think that is the thing that I believe the opposite that it's like this you know this desire or this dream to have a certain status of life or the way things look i think i was yeah very much d- taken by the the way that things appear which is why now i'm just like i don't trust anything i see or like even on social media i'm like i like i don't want to I check into that or subscribe to those beliefs of the way that you present things as being like a great way to be because I know the most miserable I've been I've posted the hottest pics I know that <laughs> I know that for sure I know that for sure
1: um I have um on my desk it's as close to a motivational saying it's as close to a hang in there with a picture of a kitten as I have <laughs> in my world and it is just a little piece of metal and it has inscribed mm-hmm. in it what would you attempt mm-hmm if you knew you could not fail. And what what I Mm. interpret that to be for me is that Mm. when I'm doing something, when I'm entering into Mm. a project of any kind, imagine that it is super successful. Now, what yeah. do you want it to be? What do you want it to look like? Who are you working with? What is it that you're doing? It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be a work thing, by the way. I, I'm, mm-hmm. I, I'm just saying that what I use it for is to remind yeah. myself of like, if this was guaranteed, don't worry about what you're yeah. going to have to do to make it successful. If it was yeah. already successful, what is it that you're doing? So I ask you that question. Yeah. What would you attempt if you knew you could not fail?
2: Um, the thing that comes straight to me is just like, I don't. I don't know why it matters so much to me, but just writing that that cult TV show, that that so many people can view together, that has you know songs and catchphrases and characters that are attached to someone's life that they feel part of. Like to make something that is a long narrative show that shows change over time that impacts a large amount of people's lives for a while that for me feels important because I know how changed and how impacted I've felt by television and yeah when it comes back to it I I just love television so it would be making a really amazing tv show tell me
1: about (laughs) a piece of television that changed you in some way
2: I definitely think um, Bojack Horseman was a really big show for me and I watched it at at the right time. Um, Dealing with a lot of these same questions of like, you know, representation of oneself and identity and um, also like a lot of trauma. Like it's a lot about like family history and and how that makes you who you are, like how to be a good person, the mistakes that you make, whether someone like Bojack deserves a path to resumption. Um, That show felt really reactive to the time. That felt really fruitful in terms of a lot of my philosophy. And I also think it just changed the way that I I thought stories could be told like I love um, I love animation I really love cartoons and even like the silent episode like everything's silent and this says one word at the end like that just kind of opened up I-, I feel the same way weirdly about Rick and Morty like I really love Rick and Morty for it's like wacky zany like off the wall ways of-, of getting into any kind of worlds but at the at the core of it it's like these really kind of philosophical fundamental questions and there's a lot of like pathos and a lot of emotion. Like I, I cry so much in budget cost but um, yeah, those I, weirdly animation, I've never seen myself making an animation. I do like voice work for an animation, but that's for a kid's show. But um, I, those animations for some reason, I, they really speak to me.
1: Uh, if you could wake up one day, magic wand style, you don't have to do your mm-hmm. 10,000 hours. You just wake up one mm-hmm. day and you have a skill. It mm-hmm. can be any skill. What skill mm-hmm. would you just love to possess?
2: I'd love to do flips. I'd be, I'd love to cartwheel oh, and do flips and also answer. parkour. Does that count? Parkour? Yeah,
1: oh, Yeah. hundred percent. That's a great answer. Parkour. Oh, yeah. Be very parkour. good at parkour. Would you like do it? I'm always interested if you had this skill, is it <laughs> something that you would be doing then professionally? Like, would you introduce parkour into the rest of your life or would it just be something you busted out like socially occasionally?
2: I think it'd be socially occasionally. I just think that what's so exciting is like the freedom of it and being able to like climb around a city. Mm -hmm. That's so appealing to me. And if it came up in like a a film or a TV show, that'd be fine. But I think if I could do it privately, I would be just as excited.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I don't think you just want to Mm -hmm. like, because I think if you were really good at parkour, like people would be putting parkour too often into things. Oh yeah! Just because they knew you could do it, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like it yeah, wouldn't be yeah. appropriate to the sketch, but it's no. like anyway. If anyone like contact with, tracer, with dancing, who's really good yeah. at parkour? <laughs> so. I
2: have definitely tried to fit tap dancing into way too many things in my life. That's that's my secret <laughs> skill is tapping, and it's it's overused. I can't do it anymore.
1: Uh, final question I have a time machine Oh let's do the plugs By the way So Friday and Nip mm. Make a whole bunch of stuff That you can find If you like Google Friday and Nip But is there anything else mm. That you would like to plug While you're here today?
2: Um, I mean, we've just kind of released this like half-hour special on SBS On Demand. It's called Cancelled, and it's the Feed Comedy team. Um, it's like directed by Ben Jenkins, got Alex Lee, me, Jenna, um, amazing other like commentators like John Roscopolis, Julius Miro, Matt O'Kine, Ray Johnson. Like, it's it's just such a um great um little half-hour special, and it's on SBS On Demand. Check it out.
1: Uh, thank you very much for joining the show, by the way. This has been a great pleasure. I have absolutely uh, enjoyed this very much. So thank you for doing it. Um, final question, I have a time machine. Um, you mm-hmm. can go to any point in history, any point in the future. Mm-hmm. You can visit yourself. You can ignore mm-hmm. yourself. Like, I'm not worried <laughs> about you changing time or any of those sort of things. It is a mm-hmm. blank check when it comes to time travel. Uh, where would you like to go? Mm. Um
2: I think, yeah, my first instinct is to go back in time to visit um, my inner child and to give my inner child a big hug. And that is how I feel about my life at the moment. <laughs>
1: it's a good answer. I love that. Thank you so much for doing this show today. Uh, I, I hope you've enjoyed it. I certainly have.
2: Oh, thank you so much.